Welcome to my podcast and we are in fact flying into the new year with a wonderful friend and guest George Bacon. I first met him when he flew into Highclere in 2010 because we were celebrating the centenary of Geoffrey de Havilland's first flight at Highclere and we've become, I hope, firm friends ever since. Welcome, George. Thank you so much for coming. And I suppose we're now, we are now looking at a new year ahead of us. I hope we've got fun flying plans together, but I wanted to ask you to share some of the stories, not just from only what you do with us at Highclere, but from an incredibly varied career, which has covered, actually, I suppose, much of the globe, as well as many different career steps. Just a touch. Well, it is great, and look forward to this year working with you once again. It's a real pleasure, Lady Carnarvon, to join you again here. And it's just been such fun since we first met, a joint love of both this wonderful estate and of course the aviation connection with it as well. It is amazing and I I was amazed to find the connection with Jeffrey de Havilland who has become as I've got to know more about him one of my heroes and of course he was a hero of early aviation and in the book I've just published The Earl of the Pharaoh early aviation plays quite a big part in it with Lord Carnarvon's early photographs of Geoffrey de Havilland's first flight and the fact that he welcomed um, Voisin, Fahmar, Brabazon, Geoffrey de Havilland mm. here to Highclere in this innovative new technology which fascinated them all and we all now take for granted. It's extraordinary. Without the entrepreneurial nature of such people um, and the risks they took, we just simply wouldn't be enjoying the travel we enjoy today. Uh, an amazing achievement. And, and to be so early, I think Geoffrey had licence number two uh, in UK, which is extraordinary. I think Charles Rolls had number three, and I know he was a friend as well. Um, and their legacy is just astonishing. It is. I presume more Brabazon had licence number one. I'm pretty sure he is. I, I was, yeah. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was absolutely. Going, yeah. I'm going to hazard a guess. And his first plane was called Bird of Passage, which is such a beautiful name. And he was planning to fly from Highclere, but in the end he went to the Isle of Sheppey, which is why the, the sheds that he'd built here for his plane became vacant and Geoffrey de Havilland took them up. From, from Lord Carnarvon, but an amazing man. And actually it was because of the sad death of Charles Rolls that Moore Brabazon's wife asked him to stop flying. So Charles Rolls of Rolls-Royce, Rolls-Royce fame um, was an early aviator and um, as well as they all were. And sadly died far too young, didn't he? At an air display, one of the very first in UK, at Christchurch, just along the coast from Bournemouth, which is one of the shows I now work on as well. Um, and it's another little commemoration we do every year as well to the nature of what an extraordinary career he had and, and cut short so early in his, in his 30s. Um, but um, I, I was reflecting on what an adventure is. I mean, a tremendous achievement now, but um, thinking about some of the things that I've done only in the last 20 or 30 years, it's still an amazing adventure. And I think it doesn't matter whether you understand how aeroplanes work or what they do, but I think just leaving the ground every time you do it is an adventure. And I think it's the same for many people in airliners too. When that throttle goes forward and you feel that surge of acceleration, 
it, it's a wow moment. Um, and, um, you know, I've, uh, I've had an extraordinary life. It never was my first choice of career, but um, I discovered it via the Royal Air Force and then latterly the, uh, the British Army. And there, there is a whole different genre of stories there. Um, because I actually was, was concentrating on voice work and broadcasting, and, and I've luckily will touch on what I now do. But um, the opportunity to, um, I had uh, just a few decades ago working for a company called Britain Norman to deliver their aircraft around the world was just a superb adventure. Um, and, and although we've got technology to help us, you can't help but think back 100 years to the risks these guys took. Just flying across the channel, for example, in 1910, was a massive achievement, just seven years after the Wright brothers. I remember reading in Geoffrey de Havilland's um, autobiography, or maybe perhaps it was an article the journalism, but they said, what was his greatest achievement? And this was many, many decades later. And he said, looking back, it was still the first few inches off the ground here at Beacon Hill at Highclere. That, he thought, was his greatest achievement. And when I look at the photographs, I think of it as the top of a supermarket shopping trolley with bicycle wheels, with piano wire, with wings sewed by his wife. But he was very clever developing the engine with the right um, both thrust and weight ratio to get the thing in the, in the air. But how extraordinary was that? And he'd never seen one fly. That is remarkable. And now, of course, so much of that risk is taken out with graphic design and wind tunnel experiments and so on and so forth. Um, To have done that without having had any previous experience is just quite remarkable. Um, And even youngsters today flying, you know, there is some fear and trepidation, despite it all being very, very well managed now um, to uh, an extraordinary extent that um, nobody would go flying without them being already assessed as being very competent. Um, In fact, it's one of the great things about uh, flying is that there is a minimum level of competence um, that you you must have. Every pilot, they say, well, he's a good pilot or he's an above average and so on and so on. But actually, all pilots need to be pretty good. Otherwise, they just simply don't get a license. Um, It was very different 100 years ago, uh, as we we know. So did you begin to learn to fly fixed-wing aircraft and then move on to helicopters? Or where did you start? Yes, well, having decided that I wasn't going to go down one road, which was very sort of more artistic and, 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 and involved slightly in the drama world, but in the broadcasting element. Um, I just fancied doing something completely different. Um, and I wasn't from that, the sort of background that you would expect. My family weren't military. Um, I had no connections with the military or aviation whatsoever. But it, going back to that inspirational story, looking up into the sky, you know, and, and wonderful books like, do you remember Jonathan Livingston Seagull? You know, the, yeah. you're back in the... The 70s and so when that was popular the the mythology of flying right back to Icarus is is a tremendous inspiration and I just thought I'd rather fancy doing something different and I thought well if I'm going to learn to fly probably the best place to do it is with the military um, and applied and got in uh, to my great surprise um, did jolly well and I was training on a thing called a jet provost which is already now a very vintage aircraft but a, a lovely jet to fly um, and, and I had a, 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 an accident, a bar, bar, it's called a barotrauma, where I damaged one of my ears in a particular manoeuvre um, and was grounded and, um, and was pulled by the medics at that stage. That was it. Um, and it was only then, and I'm going to cut a long story very short, um, that somebody said, well, why don't you just ring the army? And I thought, well, what do they do? They don't need to fly. 
<laughs> I mean, they live in trenches and things like that. Well, to my, you know, lo and behold, I went along to see a senior medical officer in the army. He said, oh, for goodness sake. He said, that's not a problem for us. He said, we rarely go above 500 feet. And he said, you know, we, we live in the weeds and um, uh, we have no pressurised aircraft. So you're in. Here's my signature. Crack on. Um, <laughs> so, so that's when I got involved yeah. with helicopters. Yeah. Um, but I was very quickly taken off the rotary course. So I basically had to do the, the, the same yeah. training course again. Um, um, because they, um, they discovered that I'd done quite a bit of fixed-wing flying. That, then, is my connection with Geoffrey de Havilland, because they then asked me, um, uh, do you know what a beaver is? And I thought, well, the little furry animal that lives in Canada and in dam, makes dams in rivers and things. Um, and I'd not seen a de Havilland, a DHC uh, beaver, uh, because it is made by de Havilland Canada. Mm. Um, well, it's an absolutely fabulous aircraft, and that is the one that I flew in here in um, 2010 mm. uh, for that wonderful 100th anniversary event, along with a DHC-1 chipmunk. Um, and all the Can Canadian de Havilland aircraft are named after indigenous um, animals yeah. in North America. Um, and it goes on to otters and so on and so forth. Um, but um, the, the Beaver, I've had a lifelong relationship with her. It is the most extraordinary machine. It's, a, it's very much a pilot's aircraft, uh, very much a bush plane. Um, I managed to get two years in Canada myself flying as a bush pilot for the military there on a Canadian base um, and flew it on skis and floats, um, designed essentially to open up the Northwest Territories. Uh, simple things like the door is designed to take a 50-gallon oil drum so that it can be deposited on, in the ice areas and so on and so forth, but also the ability to fly in so many different ways to land it. I mean, wonderfully romantic stuff. I always think that flying a float plane is just the bee's knees. Um, it's just delightful. Skiing a plane is, can be a bit tricky, uh, but um, the, uh, the, the sheer romance of going into rivers and lakes in mountainous areas um, with an aeroplane is just so romantic. How extraordinary. So how long, what, what happened after you left the army? You presumably decided well, to leave the I army. Well, I got while I was involved there, and this brings me on to the work I now do with uh, your good self and indeed many other clients around UK. Um, I um, got involved in producing air displays. And at Middle Wallop, the largest grass airfield in Europe, just ooh, barely 15 miles or so from here, yeah. um, uh, we... we um, hosted, um, and this is going back to the mid-80s now, um, an international air show on the back of the international air tattoo that had formed up at both Greenham Common and latterly at Royal Air Force um, Fairford as well. Um, and that, for me, started to pull together what by now was a passion for aviation, but also with a passion for creative events at the same time. And um, I almost found... Um, the, the building a presentation of aviation, along with music and commentary, to be as gripping and exciting for me as flying the actual aircraft. And uh, that went on to be, be a huge success, um, uh, the International Air Show itself, and we had visitors from all over Europe coming to that annually. Um, and then that led into another new idea with a very good friend of mine who only died very, very recently, a man called Ross Malloch. Um, extraordinarily talented man who, and, and my nickname by the way is Smokey, um, we might have time for that story um, the nickname. <laughs> I'd like to smoke yeah. story. Um, uh, he said, Smokey he said, I've got a good idea, he said why don't we do this differently next year, why don't we just set the whole thing to music 
well, that just was fantastic, I don't know. I thought it was wonderful. And the, the end of that story is an, it was an event, sadly now stopped, called Music in the Air. And for me, um, that was the ultimate way uh, to present aviation because we talk about inspiration and motivation, um, but there was a famous composer of, of, of popular music, Quincy Jones, who describes music as the emotion lotion. And uh, to, to set a variety of different air displays, including the wonderful Christian Mulak, I don't know if you know him, he's the man with the flying geese, yeah. uh, trains geese. To set all that to a full symphonic orchestra and choir without any commentary, was just, you know, chilling. It, it really, really was chilling. And for me, that, that was the ultimate thing to do. So what I started to do then, as well as managing pure air display teams, was actually trying to work with other event um, managers and holders um, and trying to add some extra creativity by embedding aviation within it. Um, hence things like my involvement with Carfest and Chris Evans. Uh, you know, I've worked with him for seven years. And, you know, that was tremendous. And it, a really interesting hybrid event that had food, had cars, had music, but it also had aircraft as well. Um, and again, you know, working with you here to bring that spirit, and it is a spirit of aviation, um, into this wonderful estate, which already has aviation embedded within it. It was was real joy. I, I'm, I'm banging on too much. No, no, you're yeah. not. I mean, yeah. I think, and I love the idea of spirit of aviation mm. because there are so many um, extraordinary spirits here at Highclere and so many stories to tell. And it has been a complete joy because after that, the event in 2010, which I remember so well, it was one of the best days of my life. It was phenomenal. It was just so happy making and so extraordinary it really brought back the heritage of the past then things carried on it was only when i then wrote the catherine book lady catherine the real downton abbey that i realized there was a b-17 that had crashed here on may the 5th 1945 only because um eddie the keeper said to me excuse me my lady do you know about the b-17 in the hill so this was when I was just about to hand in my manuscript. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, my goodness. Um, and it ended up being the epilogue. But I knew it'd be the prologue for other things in my life and stories here. And then I began to find to find it. And then I, then I reached out to Steve Bohill-Smith mm -hmm. and said I would like to find a plane. And then after that, I found Paul McTaggart because I needed a metal detector to help me find yes. it. And then after that, we began to realise from the knowledge of the keepers that it was not the only plane. So it's the end of the handed-me-down knowledge because Eddie the keeper was here, f work, was here on the estate for 60 years and he knew his predecessors who'd passed the stories down. So we then found a P-38, which one of the other keepers showed us where it was. And then we have found through that many other planes and through the internet which is gloriously helpful in today's world for projects like this the the listings of where the planes were which were often mis slightly mislisted or the time slightly mislisted so it was really interesting but i am really grateful for that one line of eddie hughes the keeper saying excuse me <laughs> i'm thinking Reiki. without that i'm not sure they would have necessarily been found. So it's been very good 
to find them, to share the stories, to create a siege around them, and then around the spirits of these men long gone to say thank you. So I know that's what you've helped me do and then raise money for those who serve and those who save. But it's been such a journey of discovery for me here and I was so ignorant about planes and I'm so fascinated, passionate, not in your wonderful way of flying them, but passionate in what it says about all of us. So it is been a uh, Very much so, and it, it's wonderful that you have the spirit to keep that alive and to tell more stories. It's almost as if Highclere has always been a magnet for aviation. I mean, even when I'm flying people around here locally, I, I always bring them past Highclere Castle because it is just such such phenomenal sight, but from the air as well as on the ground. And um, it, you may not be aware, and this could be a first for your podcast, I am looking at doing a trial in the new year um, to get aircraft landing here again, uh, you know, very near to the house. Now, Seven Barrows, in many ways, was a challenging site for Geoffrey de Havilland to have chosen to do his first flight because of the, the slope. Um, and now it has a, a pylon going through it. And I must admit, when I flew in um, 12 years ago, I thought, <laughs> gosh, this is going to be interesting. So as long as we go in under the pylon and we make sure when we leave we go over the pylon, it's going to be absolutely fine. Um, but what would be wonderful um, for your next event here to, to keep that spirit alive was to, to actually have some de Havilland aircraft, Tiger Moths or whatever, actually landing on, on the strip before the cars arrive, of course. Um, it would right. be wonderful. So what we're trying to do is I've created a calendar for Highclere now, which was a little bit lacking, I think, before Geordie and I sort of really got to grips with trying to find different roles and ways of sharing Highclere. And every October, the beginning of October, before the weather changes and at a glorious time of year when when perhaps there's less going on elsewhere as well, so you don't clash as much... Um, we've got a weekend marked out, which this year is um, going to be about the legacy of Tutankhamun, the legacy of Lord Carnarvon. And part of that is the plane story. So I thought that would be fantastic because obviously his wife flew out to try to save his life, to be by his bedside in um, the end of March 1923. And while she got to his bedside, she couldn't save his life, but she'd rented a plane from Geoffrey de Havilland and took off from Croydon. So that's a nice connection. And then in, in 2024 and 25, I want to turn back to World War II, 44 to 24, 25 to, um, 45 to 25, and again, think once more of, of what we can learn from what our ancestors did and the stories that these planes tell us. So I've got a few plans afoot, but I hope it would be enormous fun to share it and see if we couldn't do that again and land here. Very much so. Um, I'm certainly going to do my best to make that happen. And while I've got a moment, I commend your latest book to everybody listening because I was almost in tears when I got to that moment at the end when Geoffrey de Havilland once again appears as an assistant to Lady Almina to get her to her dying husband. I mean, it's just extraordinary. And I thought uh, the whole book was a remarkably candid insight into how... The family lived a hundred years ago as well. I, I was riveted by it, and, and uh, to, to tie that all together in such a personal story, 
with aviation as well was, I thought, a remarkable achievement. So well done, and make sure everybody, you, if you're listening today, you, you will read it, please. Well, you are very kind. <laughs> I, I enjoyed writing it, and I've actually also read the audio book. Ah. <laughs> and, um, and at the end, um, at, towards, the, towards the very end of the book, there are some parts which are quite moving, and I was trying to read it. It took me several goes because I was in floods of tears. And then the person who was organising the book, if I stopped crying she started crying so we had to stop for tea and have another go but I I found it an amazing book he was such a I don't know renaissance figure of a man his his life embraced so much when I started writing I thought is there going to be enough to write about by the time I ended I thought I haven't included it all so and I hope that if I can give talks on different, you know, um, in different air bases, which I have been asked to do, as I mentioned in one, I can bring out more of my notes and history of flying and some of those quotes as well. So you, I, you can sort of tailor it because there is so much in there. It's great, isn't it? But thank you. So have you written a book, George? No, my children are badgering me to death to do it. But, you know, I, I just love the outdoor event market. I'm forever working on the next plan, even though the winter is a quiet period for me. I've already got bids coming in to help with various events around the country. Um, it is time, but I must discipline myself to do it because I must admit on the back of um, my aviation, um, it's not really a Career. I'd call it more of an experience. Um, um, I've had, you know, there are some wonderful stories, um, including, and I'll just briefly mention um, the smoky bit. It I was, was in going Canada. to say, please. No. Come well, on it was speak. in Canada. It was in a de Havilland mm-hmm. aircraft, the DHC-2 Beaver. Um, and I picked up a very senior member of the uh, government, British government, who'd come out to inspect what the British Army was spending all their money on in Canada. Um, and I was number one person to meet uh, this chap. Well, on the way from uh, Calgary out, to the uh, the middle of the prairie where all the training took place, um, I, I discovered a bit of a burning smell in the cockpit. And um, it turned out that uh, it wasn't necessarily the engine on fire, but all the electrical wiring around the engine had caught fire. Um, so I told the said gentleman, um, who was from the Treasury Department, to, um, to um, strap him, make sure to sit back and make sure he was braced, because we we're going to take an unscheduled landing in one of the very large fields below us. Um, he then went very quiet on me, unsurprisingly. Got a long story short, what I thought was a very smart, um, well-mown greenfield turned out to be uh, 18 inches of fresh barley. Um, uh, I floated down there very gently, having put out a, a mayday call just to warn everybody that um, I was no longer flying to my destination. Um, landed very safely. Um, not surprisingly, the farmer who owned that field was not, not very happy, um, me having just cut a huge swathe through it. Um, the expletives I won't go into uh, in this broadcast, um, but nonetheless, it was a difficult difficult um, uh, with a bit of confusion from my passenger, um, an irate Canadian farmer, uh, and then the, uh, the police. And I don't know if you've ever been pulled over. I'm sure you're a very good driver. But um, if you speed in North America, of course, they're very sharp in pulling you over. And the first thing they do when they get out, of course, is adjust the hat. The next thing they do is the right hand goes down to the little clip over the uh, over the revolver, and they just unclip that, and it's then a case of, well, good afternoon, sir, what's going on here? Well, you can imagine then the conversation between the English minister, very proper, trying to work out why he was in this field, and a very, very irate um, farmer with a shotgun by now. But the piece de resistance was a friend of mine flying a helicopter had heard me put out the mayday. 
came straight across, hovered over the same green field, thinking exactly the same as I did, then landed the helicopter in the same <laughs> green field. Swathes of barley then parted. But he'd brought an engineer with him as well. And the engineer leapt out and said, well, right, oh, sir, what, what's going on here? I said, well, you know, it's obviously broken. There's something's gone wrong, blah, blah. And what had happened during the, the, the descending flight, a bit of smoke had gone down the side of the fuselage and discolored the fuselage. Now, I was the only pilot that flew this aircraft, and I was there for a couple of years, so I put my name on the door. And he very cleverly and very quickly licked his finger and above my name, in the dirty, ashy, now discoloured door, above my name, which was George Bacon, obviously, put in a finger above it, Smokey. <laughs> and that was 1983, and it's stuck with me ever since. <laughs> very funny. <laughs> yes, well, no, you have been amazing, but um, well, I'm glad you landed safely. And I imagine the, the farmer was um, um, compensated for his crop. Well, well, that was the extraordinary part of it, because the Treasury Minister was obviously the man that took the claim, eventually. <laughs> I mean, it, it was really was quite ironic, but um, there we are. I mean, it was a, it was a great story, and I, I went on to do and, and have lots more adventures in landing in strips in the mountains and lakes and, and, and ski. I mean, my first um, uh, time on skis, I mean, I remember getting the engineers to, to do that, and I was very desperate to fly through the winter. It's very cold, of course, minus 30 is not unusual in Canada in the winter. Um, and I said, right, OK, let's go and trial it now. We got the skis on. Well, nobody would come with me. They just didn't trust me. And, and, and I was operating on my own, so I didn't have any great instructions. So I, I, I rang all the jet pilots I knew up at Cold Lake, way up north, and said, hey, can, you, can you advise me where's a good place to go and do this? So and I, anyway, I duly did and went off with my flask of coffee, parkers, gloves, and all that sort of stuff, lots of fuel, of course, found this lake, and, um, and then made my approach and, and landed. And the first thing that surprised me was just how hard it is landing on ice. I mean, it's absolutely rock solid. It's like tarmac. So you land and then go bouncing all along the... And then I very foolishly thought, oh, my goodness, I haven't practised stopping. <laughs> so I very foolishly put a touch of rudder in to slow it down a bit. And all that did was send me into a couple of very nice pirouettes um, on the lake. I felt such a fool. Um, but I was safe and sound, and then I went up and down and did it five more times. So how do you stop, or you just let well, it stop? Well, you don't, you, you don't, just, you just, just let it run down. out. Yeah. Yes. But, um, but it was such a big lake, I thought I could go on skidding here for, for some minutes, and I just thought, well, I don't want to end up on the other side. Um, anyway, there, there, there would be horror stories. People would be listening down and saying, oh, my God, what an idiot. <laughs> you know? um, <laughs> but then, of course, it goes right back to 1910, to those great pioneers, yes. and the spirit and the risks they took um, for the greater good of mm. mankind. What you still do come here with, which is magic, are your historical helicopters, which you kindly brought last October. Mm. And I hope you might bring again next October, which are amazing to see fly and amazing for people to walk up to and ask you questions and kind of get up close and personal, which I think is the interesting, which is so interesting. And for me, that's it. It's telling the story. It's not, even when I'm flying it, the mechanics of thing is not something that I get overexcited about. But when I have people with me telling the story of what people did with these aircraft, particularly the helicopters, very, very difficult circumstances. You know, the Bell 47, for example, you know, when the very earliest operational helicopters um, and and it's what all the children still draw today a big bubble with a rotor on the top um, but um, going back to the the work the army did you know they're amazingly courageous people who are flying along the battle lines but without any protection whatsoever directing gunfire onto enemy positions um, a hugely uh, demanding role 
um, in combat to do. So much better now when you can stand off you know, 20, 30, 40 miles, if not a lot, rather, and, and fire off an, a, a missile using a GPS system that takes it to the target. You know, that wasn't possible in those days. So it's telling the stories uh, of those sort of people. Again, pioneers, different age, 1940s, um, and, and today's pioneers are, are moving on again. Here we are now on the verge of going to Mars. Um, you know, it's, 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 it, we're, we're now moving on into a different period of uh, aviation evolution, but the pioneering spirit, the inspiration and the motivation is much the same as it was 100 years ago. It is, and it does come down to those few inches which Geoffrey de Havilland took off and cleared between the ground and the plane in 1910. It's amazing, isn't it? Thank you, George, so much for coming to be with me today. And I'm looking forward to next October, and I hope many other jolly suppers or dinners in between. Well, well that would be marvellous. Let's do that yeah. as well. Yeah. If we both, <laughs> chances are neither of us will have time. We will. We'll make time. <laughs> uh, well, it'd be wonderful. Thank you. It's be been right. a real pleasure and a privilege to join you. Thank you. Thank you, George, very much.